Okay, while everybody is uh, taking their seat, just a reminder about the uh, <clears throat> the trip to Washington, D.C. Bryce, have you checked on, on how many are going to D.C.? Okay, so there's still there's still some room, and we need to get um, so we need to fill that up, and people need to make some decisions there. And the Israel trip as well. There's a number of people who have email, number of people who have uh, indicated to me that they plan to go. But for planning purposes, there's a reason we want you to send in registration money. That's for the the that's refundable is because we need to get a good idea of how many are going. Some things will be dependent upon how many people come. So we need to get a pretty good idea of that um, as soon as we can. The other announcement is that uh, Tuesday night, Gary Burdett, who is one of the, um, I think he was one of the founding members of this congregation, went to be with the Lord. And uh, he's been suffering with a number of physical maladies for a very, very long time, uh, longer than he than this church, probably for, what, 20 or 30 years. And uh, all of that was ultimately the cause of his, of his death. But he is now face-to-face with the Lord. He's got a, uh, <clears throat> his interim body, and there's no more pain or sorrow. And so we can rejoice uh, with him as we pray for his wife, Carol. Uh, his his uh, two daughters, Jill and uh, uh, Jennifer, and uh, <clears throat> Jennifer is the uh, also the daughter-in-law of uh, of the Munsons. So, uh, in fact, that's how I got to know uh, all three families. Was one summer twenty years ago, all these kids got married that were siblings of each other, and that's how I got to know those those families. So. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, prepared to study the Word. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Please be in prayer for these families. Uh, This will be the third funeral in as many weeks. And so be in prayer for those families. Be in prayer for others in the congregation who have life-threatening diseases and for their families and decisions that they have to make. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for your grace, your goodness, the many things you provide for us, the wonderful weather we've experienced the last few days and over the next couple of days, and just the cool cool air and the dry air. Father, we're thankful for each day you give us to serve you. There's no guarantees we'll have it tomorrow, so we need to redeem the time each and every day, focusing upon you, walking with you, with a focus on serving you, whether we serve you in a, a secular capacity, a secular job, or whether we are serving you 
in uh, other ministry or whatever area it is, Father, we pray that we might recognize that we are here on this earth with a mission, and that is to serve you to grow to spiritual maturity and to make an impact uh, for the gospel, make an impact for truth. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today, you'll help us to understand these very important doctrines that are part of this, this verse that we're studying in this section, working our way through a difficult passage and coming to understand some important things as they relate to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, over the last three or four lessons, uh, we've been focusing on 1 Peter 3.18, as we will today, taking time to look at one important doctrine that is taught in the passage related to salvation, and that is the doctrine of of uh, substitutionary atonement, looking at different aspects of that and what that means, so that when you read that word atonement in the scripture, you have an understanding of what is being talked about and what's being said. <clears throat> now I want to stop a minute and just talk about this context a little bit. This is considered a difficult passage. Martin Luther, by the way, Next Tuesday is Reformation Day. October 31st is the anniversary, and this one will be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther, who was not intending to start a Reformation, not he, he wanted to reform or debate some issues in the church, but he didn't think he would be starting a breakaway movement. Uh, he nailed 95 debate points to the uh, local bulletin board, which was the front door of the church in uh, Wittenberg, which is now in East Germany, which was uh, where he uh, where he served, where he was located. He was an Augustinian monk, and that sparked debates over the role of works in terms of uh, in terms of justification, and he took his stand on the scripture. Sola Scriptura, he said, on this I stand, I can do no other. And that is what lit a fire that changed Western civilization, transformed Western civilization. And the nations that were most impacted by the Protestant Re Reformation were northern France, mostly in, the, uh, in, in Holland, that area, uh, the Scandinavian countries, uh, Germany, the Roman Catholics maintained control in France and in, um, in Austria, Italy, Spain. But the countries that were most impacted by the thought of the Protestant Reformation were the nations that later experienced the greatest degree of freedom. And the one group of people that were most impacted, that is, they... they really studied the word and let the word transform their lives and their culture more than any other were the English-speaking peoples, the Brits, the Scots, uh, not so much the Irish. They, the, most of Ireland stayed Roman Catholic, but it was the impact of the gospel and the word of God that transformed that culture and laid the foundation for uh, the development, not the origination, but the development of free market economy as we understand it in its uh, positive aspects. And it laid the groundwork for freedom. 
It laid the groundwork eventually for the abolition of the slave trade. If it weren't for white male evangelicals, we would still have slavery, something that is lost today in the way the liberals are wanting to rewrite history. And liberalism has basically become synonymous with socialism and anti-Americanism and anti-constitutionalism. But the constitution of this republic is a direct outgrowth of the impact of the thinking of the Protestant Reformation. It is the source of our freedom because true freedom can only come in the realm of reality, and reality is defined by a creator God and who has revealed himself to us in his word. And until we have spiritual freedom, we can't truly understand or appreciate political or economic freedom. And it is sad today to realize that if you talk to high school or college graduates, they, the concept of the Protestant Reformation and what happened is totally foreign to them. If it was talked about at all, it was criticized in their, if they took anything, they don't have uh, what used to be called Western civilization. Now they'll have world cultures and world history, and it's dominated by identity politics and gender politics. And it bears no resemblance whatsoever to what was taught 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago in terms of world history or Western civilization. And what made Western civilization different from African civilization and Asian civilization and Middle Eastern civilization is biblical Christianity. And so any attack, all of these attacks that we see on history, even though that, I'm not saying that everybody did the right thing, but all of these attacks on history are basically attacks on Christianity and Judeo-Christian values. And it doesn't matter what the surface causes are because the useful idiots that are uh, convinced to take a knee when the national anthem is played or to go out and riot, to go out and demonstrate, all of these uh, people have no idea that they're just being used by people in position and power and wealth to attack the stability of this nation and its foundation. And we saw this in a big way in the late 60s and early 70s, and a lot of those people that were young then are now older, and they've got money, and they're just as radical and just as hostile to Americanism and just as hostile to the Constitution and the founders as they were in the 60s and 70s. They really do not like constitutional America. They want to change it into something like, like Europe. And the first step, of course, is to attack and get Christianity out of the marketplace of ideas. So next Tuesday is a great day to celebrate that because of Martin Luther, he didn't get a lot of things right. He got a lot of things wrong because he was still so influenced by his Roman Catholic education and background, but he got one thing right, and that was that salvation is by grace and we're justified by faith alone and that the only authority is the Bible. Sola Scriptura was one of the key phrases that came out of the Reformation in sola fide, only by faith. And so we can... Uh, be very, very thankful for that. 
But Martin Luther commented on this passage in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. But I think he got a bit confused on other things. He called James a right strawy epistle, which meant that it had no real substance to it, and it really does. And he also doubted whether or not Revelation ought to be in the canon because he couldn't understand it. And there's a curse at the end that if you add to it or take away from it, God's going to curse you, and there'll be a judgment. And he didn't like that, so he wasn't sure Revelation should be in the canon. But like I said, he had his flaws, but if it weren't for his courage and his willingness to take a stand on the Word of God, we would not have the freedoms and we would not have all the blessings that we have today. So as we look at this particular passage, we need to recognize there's a lot of interesting, interesting things there, things that you may not notice. Looking at the English text, sometimes you might notice them. Millard Erickson, who is a contemporary evangelical theologian, he's written a three-volume work on um, on uh, evangelical theology, systematic theology. He's also edited a number of uh, uh, theological dictionaries, things of that nature. He calculates that that when you look at all the exegetical possibilities in these five verses that there are at least 180 different exegetical combinations. Now, I think I can go through most of that and at least negate about 150 of them, but some of them are quite challenging to work through. So I am making progress. When I get done, you'll probably say, well, why did you do all that? Well, because you have to be able to truly understand the text to teach it. You can't just teach what somebody else taught, even if it makes sense to you. You, as If you're a pastor worth his salt and his education, you can't cook somebody else's dinner. And there's too many pastors that do that. How would you like it if you went to a restaurant and the, the, the guys in the kitchen were getting takeout orders from another kitchen and they were just bringing them in and reheating them in the microwave and then serving that as their own. And that's what goes on in a lot of pulpits in this country because the pastors are uneducated. The pastors really don't have the gift of pastor teacher or they're just plain lazy. And this is not a passage for anyone who is lazy, let me tell you that. It's one sentence in the Greek. It goes from verse 18 all the way to the end of 22. And one of the Greek texts, they do recognize that in a couple of places it comes to almost a full stop. So you have several different independent clauses here. So there's at least two or three main thoughts that are expressed here. It's the third most significant passage on Jesus Christ in the epistle. The first is in First uh, Peter one eighteen to twenty one, and the second is in First uh, Peter two twenty two to twenty five, and these passages emphasize the suffering of Jesus. Now I think it's really interesting. 
in the providence of God, as I'm teaching through First Peter here, that at the same time that we're teaching through Peter's talk about Christ's suffering, on Sunday morning during this time, we have been looking at what Christ was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we will soon be looking at his uh, suffering, physical suffering leading up to the cross, and then his death on the cross, his spiritual substitutionary uh, death on the cross. And so it's interesting that in those passages, as you have gone with me through Matthew, Jesus again and again has been predicting that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to suffer under the hands of the religious leaders, he's going to die, and he uses the word for death, and he is going to uh, rise again. But when we get to Peter, Peter, even though there's a textual variant here in 318, that instead of suffer, because there's the, the word for suffer and the word for dying are very close to one another, just a couple of word, a couple of letters difference, that it's been changed in some texts. But Peter never talks about the death of Christ. He's always talking about his suffering. And the reason he uses a more general term is because he's applying the the principle of undeserved suffering to his readers who are being persecuted. Now, that's so important to understand this, that to inter- ultimately to interpret <clears throat> 18 to 22, we have to understand that it is being used as an explanation and illustration of the principle of undeserved suffering. Look in your Bible. Look at how these five verses are bracketed. In verse 17 of chapter 3, Peter says, For it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, what he illustrates then is Christ suffering once for sin, that Christ suffered because he is, uh, he's un- it's undeserved suffering. He's suffering for doing good rather than doing evil. And the way it begins in the Greek is hati, which means not for. I wouldn't translate it with a for. I would translate it with because, which is more precise. It's not gar, which is a word we would normally see introducing a reason or explanation. It's a little bit stronger. The idea of uh, uh, explanation or reason is very close to a cause. And, uh, but he uses hati, and it's showing that what he says in verse 18 is an explanation giving the, the reason or the cause for what he said in verse 17. And then he seems to really go off the rails because he starts talking about Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison. Who in the world are the spirits in prison? And then he ties that to Noah, so for most of you, you have a pretty good idea that this is talking about the demons that entered into human history in Genesis chapter 6 called the sons of God who intermarried with human beings. And we're going to have to spend some time talking about that, relating that to the angelic conflict. And then there's an application of Noah and these other seven who are on the ark to baptism, 
which is said to be an antitype. That means it's a foreshadowing or it's a picture of the baptism that now saves us. But he's not talking about baptismal regeneration. And then he ends by talking about the ascension and how Jesus, after, after this, has ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, and he now is in a position of authority over the angels, over the fallen angels, and they've all been made subject to him. So we're going to have to go back and review some things I haven't taught in a long time on the ascension of Christ and what that gets us. Because the purpose for this is to talk about Christ's victorious ascension and his proclamation to those spirits in prison is a cause for us to look at persecution as as something positive. Jesus is persecuted. It looks like the end of Jesus. He's going to die on the cross. But it, it isn't the end. It is the beginning, and it's his victory. And it's his victory over death, and the same thing is applied to us. Now, I talked about verse 17, 317. Look at, ignore the chapter division. The verse that follows this five-verse explanation says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice it uses the phrase, in the flesh, just as verse 18 will use the phrase being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So, as we look at this, we have to understand that that <clears throat> what is happening here is that when we look at 19 through 22, we have to understand that Peter is impressing his readers with the fact that Jesus' death wasn't a defeat but a victory that elevates him in authority over all of the angels, that he faced opposition and persecution. Noah and his family faced opposition and hostility in the world that then was before the flood, and yet they are the ones who are delivered uh, through the waters and through the flood. So therefore, this is all designed to encourage his readers that no matter what we face in life that's, that's in terms of adversity, that ultimately it is designed to bring, uh, bring us glory. If you turn back to chapter 1, this is the major theme of this whole epistle. In chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. So we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. We look down at verse 11, <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> the Spirit of God testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And as we go through this whole epistle, there's this emphasis on right suffering leads to glorification. And so that's why we have such great hope and can have such positive attitude when we look towards uh, opposition and we look towards adversity. That Christians are to identify with Christ's victory and follow in his footsteps, which is what's emphasized 
<clears throat> in the in the text. So we're focusing on this example of Christ's unjust suffering. We looked at the general category that he is, that he had undeserved suffering and opposition, but it was designed for a purpose, and that purpose is that he suffered once with reference to sin. Perry Hamartion there indicates with reference to sin, and that means he died in order to take care of the sin problem. We looked at that last time in Colossians chapter 3, that, that with his death on the cross, the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross. We're forgiven. The whole world is forgiven. The slate's wiped clean. The legal penalties paid on the cross. That doesn't mean that you're no longer spiritually dead. It just means the penalties paid. That real experience, we'll talk about that as we go through this, of, of experiencing new life doesn't happen until you put uh, faith in Christ. So he suffered once with reference to sin or concerning sins, the just for the unjust, and that brings to focus that undeserved suffering. He's the righteous one. He did not deserve any suffering whatsoever, and he suffered in the place of, who pairs the uh, uh, preposition there, the just for the unjust for a reason, and that is stated in the next clause. That reason is that it is to uh, bring us to God, okay? So these are the two prepositions here on this slide. Uh, Peri hamartion, with reference to sins, who pair the just in the place of or as a substitution for the unjust. And so we went through the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. I talked about substitution as, as uh, illustrated in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, that the one who's bringing a sacrifice places his hand on the sacrifice, recites his sins, they're transferred uh, to the animal. So the animal dies in place of the person bringing the sacrifice. The key word that was used to describe this in the Old Testament is atonement, that it's substitutionary atonement. And I went through a long study showing the misunderstandings of atonement. And then to show that atonement was really a made-up word in English to express these many facets. It's connected to redemption, which is the payment of a price. It's connected to expiation, which is the canceling of a debt. It's connected to propitiation, which is where God's righteousness and justice are satisfied by what Christ did on the cross, paying for our sins. It's connected to forgiveness because the debt is canceled. And as a result, we see reconciliation, that we are reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, as we'll see. And that's this next phrase. This next phrase what is, d defines or describes reconciliation, that he might bring us to God. Now, there's something interesting there. Think about that. If Christ is bringing us to God, that means somebody moved. We're not with God anymore. We had to be brought to God. So who moved? We moved. God didn't move. God is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. He doesn't desert man. Man deserted him. 
So the problem is man is with man, not with God. I have said something pithy for 40 years because even back in the 70s when I was in seminary, you had all of these people who talked about, well, we just have to make the Bible relevant. This has been the problem with all the human viewpoint in theology and especially in churchianity is that it isn't that the Bible isn't relevant to us, is that fallen creatures aren't relevant to God. They've moved. God is the one who's done something to restore that relationship. But the focal point needs to be understanding who God is and moving toward him and not expecting God to move toward us. Because what happens when we have this, this expectation that God is going to move toward us, then whatever we do and slap the label of worship on it, God's supposed to validate it. And again and again, we see in our contemporary culture something called contemporary worship, which is doing whatever we think impresses God. It's the basic criterion is, if I feel like I'm close to God, I must be. But we expect God to come toward us rather than conforming our thinking to God. And so all of that's uh, implied in this phrase. We are to move toward God, and that is made possible because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So tonight I want to go through the doctrine of reconciliation or what the Bible teaches about uh, reconciliation. Oh, by the way, I just because when I got this call this afternoon, I just needed to put type it in somewhere so I wouldn't forget it, and I did forget it, but I've gotten there now. I got a call from Claude Broussard this evening and to let me know that his grandson uh, went to be with the Lord yesterday. He was not not active with the army right now, but he was active duty with the with the army, but that was not related to his cause of death. So be in prayer for uh, Claude's family, for the Broussard family, and for his grandson Joseph's uh, family. All right, doctrine of reconciliation. First of all, what does reconciliation mean biblically? Basically, the idea of reconciliation is a recognition that there's a lack of harmony, a lack of peace, a state of anger or resentment or enmity between two people, and they're brought together so that that cause of anger, resentment, bitterness, enmity, or whatever it is, is removed. Biblically, it has much of the same idea, but it has a correct biblical or theological definition. And so we would define it this way. It's all that Christ did on the cross. Redemption, justification, propitiation. And then all of that takes place on the cross objectively. Expiation, forgiveness, all of that takes place on the cross. So all of that combined, all that Christ did on the cross to remove the barrier between God and sinful men. 
key passages are going to be Romans 5, 11 to 15, which we'll talk about a little bit, and 2 Corinthians 5, 18, actually should be 18 to 20. And it is basically the work of God, emphasizing God does the work, not man. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles us to him. He does the work, not us. It's the work of God in which he changes us from his enemies to his friends. Because when human beings are born, because we're sinners, because we have a sin nature and we're corrupt, we are born in a state of hostility or enmity to God. All of man's religious activity, to the contrary, uh, doesn't mean that we are it really, truly interested in God, where most of that, 99.9% of it is just human beings trying to get a relationship with God on their terms rather than on God's terms. So reconciliation is God's work in which he changes that relationship, that enmity uh, between man and himself. It's related to propitiation, and the way I express that here is reconciliation is manward. God directs it. He's changing the status of man in relation to himself, whereas propitiation is that work of Christ on the cross that is directed towards God's character. His righteousness has an absolute standard that sin must be punished. Christ bears that punishment on the cross so that God's justice is satisfied. And so God the Father accepts that sacrifice on our behalf. Now, I mentioned the barrier a minute ago, and this goes back to a basic diagram that I've used in teaching salvation many, many times. It's familiar to many of you. And what we see is that man is on one side, God's on the other, and this left column here is a breakdown of the different elements related to sin that separate man from God. And it begins with the fact of sin itself, at that God, because God is righteous, perfectly righteous, he, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, God cannot look on sin, look on evil. There's the penalty of sin. That's the legal penalty of sin. The legal penalty is spiritual death, separation from God. Then we have the specifics of God's character because God is righteous. God can have nothing to do with sin because God is absolute just. He must punish sin. And God's love is not free to fully express itself to man if his righteousness and justice are compromised. So there's a perfect solution that God came up with, and that is the cross whereby he, he sent his son to die for us. So we have the problem that God of our own relative righteousness, no matter how good we are, we never measure up to God's uh, righteousness. <clears throat> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all our works of righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
Then there's the problem of spiritual death. We're born spiritually dead. We can't have a relationship with God. Spiritual death means we're separated from God, and we can't have that relation unless he does something to make us alive. And our position in Adam, for Scripture says, in Adam all die. Each of these have a solution. Christ's payment for sin, unlimited atonement, take care of sin. Redemption paid the penalty for sin. Propitiation solves the problem of God's character along with expiation. Uh, at salvation, at faith, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and God's justice, therefore, declares us to be righteous because of his righteousness. Our spiritual death is resolved by being born again or regenerated and that we are baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so we are now in Christ. And we have all these blessings in Christ, our position in him. Now, all of this can be subsumed under the term reconciliation. When Christ pays the penalty, God is reconciling us to himself. So reconciliation is a broad term that covers all of these uh, individual aspects, okay? So that gives us a basic definition, basic orientation to what the Bible means by reconciliation. Under the second point, we want to look a little bit at the words that are used, uh, especially in the Greek text, to indicate reconciliation. It's a key subject in relation to salvation, and so like most important topics, it develops uh, its own uh, vocabulary so that we can understand it. And the main verb, there's a verb, there's a noun, they're all related as you'll see in a minute. Uh, The verb katalaso means to change something from one state to another. And specifically, it's the idea of changing someone from a state of hostility into a state of tranquility or peace, where the cause of the hostility is, uh, is removed. So it's a change from enmity to reconciliation. God is the subject of this verb. He's the one who performs the action of reconciliation. Man doesn't reconcile himself to God or reconcile God to himself. It is God who reconciles man to himself, as it's expressed here in this phrase that we are brought to him by Christ. The change is on the part of one party changing the relationship from another party. So the noun is katalego. Katalaso was the verb. Katalego is the noun. You hear the similarity, and it it just references that state of being, being reconciled or a state of reconciliation that has been affected, the change from enmity to friendship. There's a compound word. You see the main verb here, katalaso. Sometimes verbs in Greek will intensify or shift a little bit in meaning by the adding of different uh, 
prepositions as prefixes, and this intensifies the verb. It's found in Ephesians 2.16 and Colossians 1.22, and it refers in those passages to a change from uh, one state, being spiritually dead, to another state, eternal salvation. So those are the three uh, <clears throat> three main verbs, that are uh, two verbs and one noun that are used. And then we have the Greek noun arene, which is translated as peace. And that's often used as a synonym for reconciliation. It emphasizes the result of being reconciled, that because we're reconciled, we have peace with God. And so it emphasizes that work of Christ on the cross, removing the barrier and removing the state of enmity between God and man. Now, we'll get into the fact there's, there's, there's two aspects to reconciliation. Just as we studied last time when we looked at Colossians 2:12 to 14, there's a forgiveness that occurs at the cross that is a judicial forgiveness for all mankind. The certificate of debt is canceled. But it is not applied individually until a person trusts in Christ as Savior. At that time, they receive a personal positional forgiveness of sin. And then we looked at the ongoing forgiveness of sin, which is our relationship or walk with the Lord, 1 John 1, 9, and a forgiveness that relates to members of the body of Christ. Reconciliation is somewhat similar. There's an objective or forensic reconciliation that takes place at the cross because, and we'll see this in the verses we look at, it is at the cross that God is reconciling the world to himself. It's the same language there that God so God loved the world in this way. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he's reconciling the world to himself in one event. But that doesn't mean everybody is reconciled or has applied it. So there's that difference between the objective reality and the subjective or individual application. Third point, first point had to do with the definition, second point, the vocabulary. Third point is that all human beings are born sinners and are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.21. Romans 5.10 says, if when we were enemies stating our original condition, we were reconciled to Christ through faith. Is that what it said? What does it say? See, this is where we, we don't always read it clearly. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. The death of his son occurred in A.D. 33. There is a, an objective reconciliation of the world to God that occurs in that transaction on the cross. That's that first category. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, something that happens in the past, we shall be saved by his life. There he's using salvation in a broader sense than just getting into heaven when we die because it's saved by his life, not by his death. It's talking about that abundant life that we can have because we have been reconciled to God. So all human beings are born as sinners and 
<clears throat> Colossians 1.21 is the other verse, and it emphasizes that same thing. We'll see that verse in a little bit. Fourth point, is the sinner at enmity with God, or is God at enmity with the sinner? That's a good question to ask. Because, you know, it's so often that we get things sort of turned around and we make things man-centered or me-centered. The question here is, is a sinner at enmity with God? Look at that. We, When we were enemies, we made ourselves enemies of God by, by sin. So we're at enmity with God. God is not at enmity with the sinner. In other words, the question is, does man reconcile himself to God or does God do the reconciling? And the answer is that God does the reconciling through the death of his son. Man is reconciled. It's a passive verb. He receives the action. God does all the work and man, man receives it. And the change is just change the status of the world. Second Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. Second Corinthians 5.19 says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. They're imputed to Christ. So he's reconciling the world to himself, and then he's committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. So there's a change in the status of the relationship of the world to God with what happens at the cross that doesn't save people, okay? It, 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 but it changes the relationship with the cross. And that's another dispensational distinctive because in the Old Testament period, the world has not been reconciled to God. What else is different? Sin hasn't been paid for yet. What else is different? There's no identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so there's no uh, freedom from the tyranny of the sin nature. So everything before the cross is radically different than after the cross so because of this transaction. In Romans 5.10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God. We don't reconcile ourselves because we're in a state of enmity. God is the one who reconciled us through the death of his son. So that all orients us to the main ideas. Now I want to talk about some of these key verses, key passages. So there's basically basically two key passages, uh, three key passages. Romans 5, 6 to 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, and then also Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. That's probably the key verse. 2, 14 through 17 would be the passage. 2, 16 would be the, uh, the main key verse, but you ought to look at the whole passage. So let's look at a couple of these verses. Let's look at the 2 Corinthians passage first. So turn with me in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians 5, which is just a wonderful chapter. It's a, 
<coughs> wonderful chapter because it starts off talking about the fact that we are that our earthly body is tempor- temporary and that it is uh, we're just going to we're temporarily clothed with it but we have a heavenly habitation and when we're absent from the body we're going to be face to face with the lord then it talks a little bit about the judgment seat of christ verses 9 to 11 and then connects that to the important gospel and the need to be reconciled to god and so let's start with verse 14 just to get some context for the love of christ compels us so god is drawing us through his love and it's exhibited at the cross cross that doesn't save us he says uh, because we judge thus that if one died for all then all died so there is a universality there at the cross that christ died for all this is called unlimited atonement there's a big debate in church history about whether Christ died only for the elect or Christ died for all. And the scriptures clearly teach that Christ died for all. John Calvin believed that Christ died for all. John Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. The idea that the rigorous system that became known as Calvinism did not develop until his followers uh, developed uh, his theological system from the time of his death up through the early 1600s. So we, we're told that once that one died for all, then all died. That's that objective forensic payment for sin that I talked about last week in, in uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Verse 15 says he died for all, that's substitutionary. He died in the place of all, that those who live, that is, uh, those who benefit from that death, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the implication of the cross is that since you've been bought with a price, Christ died for you, that we are to live for him and no longer live as self-absorbed little narcissistic sin natures that we are to live for him. We've been saved for a purpose. He died for us and he rose again. Therefore, verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. That means he knew him. They, they knew, knew him in his, in his humanity. Yet now we know him thus no longer because of the resurrection. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that key term again, being in Christ, our new position in him, He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are new. So there's a radical transformation that happens to every believer at the point of salvation. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new... I just read that. Now all things are of God, who has what? This is verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us. God is the subject of the verb. He does the action. We benefit from the action. He's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that is then going to be 
uh, developed in verse 19. What does it mean that he's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ? And what is this ministry of reconciliation? Verse 19 we read, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So he's in Christ, he's reconciling the world to himself. That's what he means in verse 18, reconciled us. He's reconciling the world to himself by not imputing trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Here's a comment written by Lewis Sperry Chafer. I was going back and reviewing some of these things, reading some things I haven't read in a while, and this paragraph struck me today. He said about this, verse 19, it is, in verse 19 it is declared that the world, cosmos, which term is never by any stretch of exegesis made to represent the, those who are saved out of it, is reconciled to God. In other words, it pictures the world in hostility to him. It is reconciled to God. This vital passage presents the truth that in and through the death of Christ, God was changing completely the position of the world and its relation to him. It never was, it's never the same again. It's totally different than what it was before the cross. The Bible never asserts that God is reconciled. If it be supposed that God is represented as having changed completely his own attitude toward the world uh, because of Christ's death, it will be remembered that it is his righteousness which is involved. So this is where it touches on propitiation. Before the death of Christ, his righteousness demanded its required judgments. But after the death of Christ, that same righteousness is free to save the lost. His righteousness is not, thus not changed nor does it ever act otherwise than in perfect equity. So that tells us two things, two things about reconciliation. There's an objective reconciliation where the world, the inhabitants of the world, are reconciled to God because of the cross. This doesn't save anyone but is the result of God's righteousness and justice being satisfied at the cross and our sin penalty eradicated. And that's what we learned last time in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, that at the cross, that certificate of death or handwriting of requirements that was against us was taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. So that's a historical event that happens in 33, a cancellation of the debt objectively. Propitiation doesn't infuse a compassion into God, but rather satisfies his judgment so that he is now free to bless and interact with the world. The second thing that we see is that reconciliation isn't experienced by the individual until there is faith or trust in the gospel. Thus, we are given a ministry of reconciliation. That's what's mentioned here at the end of verse 19. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation, which is then developed in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're given this responsibility. Every believer is given this responsibility to tell people that God has reconciled us to him and that they need to be reconciled, and that is to make that part of their life by trusting in Christ as Savior. 
We're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he's reconciled the world. He's changed that status because of the cross, but it doesn't change the individual. That individual changes only, realizes that change only when they trust in Christ as Savior. Now this gets my solution to this conundrum between limited and unlimited atonement. There are three problems that face every human being. The first is the legal penalty of sin. There's a legal penalty that has to be paid, spiritual death. Christ paid that penalty for all on the cross. Second uh, Peter two one, Christ died. That these false teachers, Christ died for them. Christ bought them. They're denying the Lord that bought them. That phrase "bought them" is redemption. He bought them. He paid the price. Second Peter two one, even for the unbelievers. So the legal penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross. That's that eradication of the certificate of debt. The second problem is God's righteousness. God is righteous and we're unrighteous. And so that problem of God's righteousness has to be, um, or God's justice has to be taken care of. That's propitiation. Okay, 1 John 2, 2, he propitiated the whole world. Okay, that's, that's universal. So you have unlimited atonement in terms of unlimited redemption and unlimited propitiation. What limits it? What keeps everybody from being automatically saved? They're still born spiritually dead. They're born unrighteous and spiritually dead. By faith, we're given the righteousness of Christ, and that's justification by faith and regeneration we're made spiritually alive. So in John 3.18, we read, He who believes in him is not condemned. We're born condemned. He doesn't condemn us secondarily. We're born condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he is not been, his sins have not been paid for. Is that what it says? See, that's what limited atonement would say. His, he's not elect. His sins weren't paid for. But it says, no, he... It's condemned because he doesn't believe. Now, why is that important? For Romans 4, 5, so I put it up here. He who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That last problem is a lack of righteousness and being spiritually dead, and that's not resolved unless we believe on him. So... We're born in a state of condemnation, and we stay there unless we believe. So the atonement is unlimited in terms of redemption and propitiation, but it's limited by our volition in terms of its application. Now, when we believe on him who justifies the ungodly, we're declared just. And Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace. That's the personal realization of reconciliation, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this section of chapter 5, specifically uh, getting down into uh, 5, 9, and 10, we read God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, that is, at a state of enmity with him, Christ died for us and where the world is reconciled to God. 
Verse 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, that is a figure of speech for his death, we shall, shall be, notice, past tense, we were justified by his blood. That happens when we trust in Christ as Savior. You can be justified and not saved. That's what the passage says. Justification is past. We've been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Being saved is talking about phase two, our spiritual growth and spiritual life. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, reconciliation is and justification is by his death. But we should, being saved by his life is talking about our spiritual growth in spiritual life. His resurrection life is the basis for our newness of life. Okay, another key couple of key passages, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind have by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Again, God reconciles us to him. In the body of his flesh, that's Christ's physical body on the cross through death, to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. So point number six, peace is a synonym for reconciliation. When with reconciliation, man is no longer at enmity, but is at peace with God. This is when man trusts God, that peace is realized, Romans 5.1. So we see this in passages like Hebrews, or excuse me, he, Ephesians 2.14-17. through 17, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Now there... He's talking about a the that 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 Jews and Gentiles were separated. There's a wall of separation between them. So he's talking first application is Jew and Gentile are brought together by uh, by Christ. He has brought peace between Jew and Gentile, having because he has abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So that's a horizontal piece between Jew and Gentile now brought together in the church as a new entity in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile. It's not an issue anymore. And in addition, he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That's that barrier between God and man has now been abolished by reconciliation. And by the cross, by it, that is the cross, having put to death the enmity. It's a legal enmity. It's not a personal hostility or anger, anger towards God. Okay? So, Christ came and preached peace to those who are far off. That would be Gentiles. And those who were near, that would be Jews. Okay. That's how Christ brings us to himself. So next time, we're really going to get into not so much the weeds, because when all is said and done, we're going to be pretty close to everything I've already said and taught, and you've taught, been heard before. But we're going to have to understand what's going on with this next phrase, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Now, if you're using a New King James or King James, the Spirit is capitalized, which is an interpretive decision. 
that that refers to the Holy Spirit. But if you're looking at a New American Standard, maybe a few others, it's a lowercase s, and they think it's the human spirit, or maybe just spiritually. So we'll have to uh, deal with that next time. And then we get into the really fun part, by whom also, or by it also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then we get into a whole other area, understanding the angelic conflict and this demonic invasion that occurred at the time of Noah. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study Reflect upon your word, think through what you have revealed to us, come to understand so much of what is meant by the fact that the just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to you, and realizing that there is so much that is uh, summarized in those simple phrases. Father, we thank you for all that was done and all that was uh, planned and performed in order that we might be brought to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.